Genesis chapter 39. This morning we're going to be uh, looking at one of life's critical questions. It's a question I'm sure that you've had. I've, I've had this multiple times. And that is, how in the world can we not only survive but even thrive in light of all the great difficulties of life and the serious temptations that seemingly are always in front of us? I mean, how is it that we're supposed to live when uh, there's temptations to lust or allow pride to run its course or to be completely driven by anger or malice? There's challenges, anything from relational difficulties to problems with our health. We face bills. There's one crisis after another. There's international issues. There's local issues. There's stuff going on nationally. We see a breakdown in society and we're... We, we come and we ask, how in the world can I not only survive this, but thrive? In light of all the pressures that we face just day in and day out. I mean, think about it. Some of you are coming in here today and you are whipped. I mean, this week has just taken it out of you. But this isn't the first time. Maybe it's about like 30 in a row here. I mean, life is hard and heavy and difficult. How is it that we're supposed to, to survive and, and thrive in this? I've asked that. I know that you have. And... You know, it's one thing when life is just going great. Everything's smooth, job looks good, family's good, everything's fine. And, and it's, it's a whole nother when life seems to be breaking down and you're dying inside. There are two chapters in the Bible that are critical for every person to understand in terms of life with God. And that's Genesis 39 and 40. In fact, if you are not familiar with these chapters, if you've never given them real study, there's probably a breakdown in your theology and life oftentimes seems confusing, if not even crushing, especially if you're a believer. Because we have the idea that I know God and I put my trust in Christ and life should be smooth sailing. But if you do not have a good theology developed on the scriptures, especially Genesis 39 and 40, there's something that's going to be missing, and it's probably very evident in your life. In Genesis 39, we, we pick up with Joseph. And just to recall what happened here, Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. Remember, he, he showered him with all this favor. He gave him this really nice coat. He protected him from all the hard work. And his brothers, he had 11 other brothers, 10 of those brothers resented him. They hated him so much, they wanted to kill him. And they had an opportunity to do so, and, but they actually said, you know, Judah had this idea. Instead of killing him, after all, he's our brother, he's in our own flesh, why don't we make some money off him? And so they sold him for 20 shekels, 20 pieces of silver. They sold Joseph into slavery. He, can't, he comes from the land of Canaan. That's where the Israel is. They, he is sold off to these Midianite and Ishmaelite traders. They take him all the way down to Egypt as a slave. And there they take their latest little possession they picked up along the way. Joseph, and they sell him. And the story picks up in chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And so we see that Joseph makes his way to Egypt and he's sold. And not just any old guy. This guy's named Potiphar. And the guy's name actually means the one whom the god Ra has given. And Ra was the sun god of Egypt, okay? And so his parents thought very highly of this guy. Whoa, the sun god, Ra, they had worshipped. Egyptians had just a plethora of gods. And they like, the sun god has given us this guy, Ra. Okay, that's his name, all right? And so they named him. Well, he happened to be the captain, you see that, of the bodyguard. 
he would have been in one of the elite positions in the Egyptian empire. He would have been very powerful. He would have been completely trusted by Pharaoh, who completely ruled all the land and the surrounding land. And he was he was in a position of great capacity. He buys this Hebrew slave named Joseph. And there's something that you need to see here in verse two. The Lord Yahweh was with Joseph. So he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. There's something that you need to see that is so unique to Joseph. And that is that the Lord Yahweh, the one true God, was with him. And because he's with him, there's great things that happen in his life. But you need to know something. God does not spare his people great difficulty. In fact, the trials of life do not keep us from the presence of God. God is with us even when it seems like the world is against us. And that was certainly the case for Joseph. He went in a short period of time from being dad's favorite boy, having a rather plush life to a point where he is actually a slave. And he starts off with some very menial labor. And we don't know what his initial jobs were, but as the kind of the new slave that was brought into probably a, a whole bunch of servants, he probably had the worst of jobs. He had to do the stuff that just everybody resented. And you know one, one thing about Joseph? The Lord was with him and his confidence in God's presence allows him to make the most of the situation. He didn't buck the system. He didn't go, ah, I hate this. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to just kind of take my beatings, but I'm just pretty much not going to function. No, on the contrary. Because of his deep-seated understanding of God's presence with him, he gives himself to the task. He is what, like Jesus pointed out, if you can be faithful in a little, you can be faithful with much. And so whatever it was, probably the grossest, dirtiest, hardest jobs, Joseph faithfully applied himself. It is all based upon his confidence in God. And, and this took notice, like his master, verse 3 his master saw that the Lord Yahweh was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. You see, when we take God and our relationship with him seriously and we actually do the task that he has put before us, however hard or dirty or disgusting they are to us, God is honored in that. People take notice. Many of you, your witness at work has been become a platform of proclamation. It is obvious that you have a relationship with God and that relationship get, is carried over to work. If you think that relationship with God is confined to Sunday morning, you're missing it. All of life is meant to be of worship to God and lived in relationship with him, including how we do our jobs. And that is exactly what Joseph does. And notice verse three. Maybe Joseph, maybe Joseph was asked the question that every believer longs to hear. Why are you the way you are? Part of my testimony is I, I asked a gal that was in my school that very same question because her testimony of her relationship with Christ was so staggering and so brilliant. I had to ask her that question. Maybe Potiphar asked Joseph, he'd seen a lot of slaves. Why are you the way you are? Why do you apply yourself like this? Why do you work so hard? And maybe he gave testimony of, Yahweh, the one true God, the God who gave a promise to his to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Maybe maybe it was this. 
Maybe Potiphar saw Joseph praying at different times. Like when Joseph woke up in the morning, maybe the report had gone out. This man begins his day on his knees praying. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. Remember uh, a guy many years later, a guy by the name of Daniel, who was in Babylonian captivity? You remember what he did, didn't you? He had a pattern of always praying. It was known to everybody that was around him. Maybe it was like that for him. Certainly Joseph had learned from his dad, Jacob. Remember Jacob? Okay, his name means trickster. But he prays and he wrestles with God all night and God changes his name to Israel, the one who persists with God. And I'm sure because of his close relationship with his father, he had seen his dad model a life of sacrifice and of prayer. And certainly he would have picked up on that. And so Joseph probably carries on this pattern that he had seen demonstrated in his in his dad's life. He now applies to his life and prayer is such a part of it. You see, he has a confidence in God. And when you've got confidence in God, you can move forward even when life is hard or it's difficult. And I've had to think about this. I've been spending a lot of time trying to get into Joseph's mind. What was going on here? I'm not sure if I would have been so good. I mean, think about it. He had been given these dreams by God. Dreams, dreams of a preeminence. His brothers are going to bow down even to him where he's going to be the one. And now as the story unfolds, he ends up a slave. He is despised. He's completely out of the promised land. He's far away from his family. His brothers hate him so much that they wanted to kill him, but they thought, better yet, let's make money off him. And yet he completely applies himself to what is in front of him. And so what happens here? Joseph's master, Potiphar, sees this. He takes notice of this. He sees that the Lord, he understands. Maybe Joseph said, hey, this is not about me. This is about God. And the reason things work out is because God is working our midst. He's quick to give glory to God. Well, verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. So great was Joseph's influence and how he was able to work that Potiphar said, you know what, I'm going to make you my personal assistant. And he keeps moving because if you keep reading here, not only is he put in charge here, but look at verse five. It came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. And so verse six. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him there. He did not concern and with him there. He did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. He saw that this this man had it. This guy was like golden. And so he had this. He trusted Joseph completely, implicitly. You see, any time you were to move forward, and this is true where you work, when people can trust you, when your superior can trust you, they're going to give you more responsibility. That's how even the Lord works. If you can be faithful with a little, the Lord gives you even greater opportunities and greater influence. But you've got to be faithful right where God has placed you. If you're like, I don't want to do this. Well, uh, you know, these are just three-year-olds. I want to be teaching the masses or whatever. You just got to be faithful where God has placed you. Bloom where you're planted. That's true for Joseph. The Lord is with him. The Lord's presence is his strength. And God continues to bless. So much so that for, for Potiphar, he comes to a point where he can entrust everything. His agriculture, his servants, his personal relations. Anything that concerns work 
All the other servants, they're all under Joseph. He's only concerned about one thing now at this point. What's on the menu? Right? You see that? He didn't concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Verse 6. So for Potiphar, he had it so good with a guy like Joseph. You know, for him it was like, you know, today is it going to be Chick-fil-A or Taco Bell? Big Mac, Whopper. You know, I mean, that's... He didn't have to worry about it because he trusted Joseph so, and Joseph was so completely trustworthy. And there's one other thing that is noted here at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's really rare when the Bible notes someone to be handsome or or beautiful. But I want to trace just a little bit of history here. Um, Do you know that Rachel, Joseph's mother, she was beautiful in face and form? That's what the Bible says. And not only Rachel, but then also Joseph's grandmother. She was described, Rebecca, as beautiful, as was his great-grandmother, Sarai. It's very interesting that these women are all described as beautiful. And so I have drawn this conclusion that, you know, your good looks, they come from your mother. Okay? All right, so let's, let's just go with that, okay? Your good looks, and you're also good-looking, you need to know that this comes from your mother, okay? And so we see that he is, he's not only successful at what he does, he's prosperous, but he was handsome in form and appearance. And obviously Potiphar had taken note of him, but so does Potiphar's wife, but for different reasons. Verse 7, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Potiphar's wife looked with her eyes. It has the idea of casting your eyes up. There is a longing, lustful look that she gives to Joseph, and she is just flat out, just very brash, and she just says, lie with me. It's a euphemism for having a sexual relationship. She just comes out, and she makes this command to say, do this. Now think about it. Joseph, a young man, he's esteemed, he's got everything going for him, so to speak, and all of a sudden his master's wife makes this proposition to him. Now, why would she, why would she make a statement like this? What is she doing? What's going on here? Well, um, there's, there's a variety of different reasons. One could be maybe she was jealous of Joseph. Maybe she noticed how much attention Potiphar gave to Joseph, and Potiphar's always talking about Joseph. This guy's so awesome. He knows everything for me. I just sit around and just think about what I eat. And maybe, maybe there was something like that. Or maybe, perhaps, uh, perhaps she was taking revenge. You see, the, the morals in Egypt were very loose. Immorality was very prevalent, not only among the Egyptians, but especially even in the, in the culture of the slaves. And so maybe... It's highly likely that Potiphar probably had multiple women in his life, and maybe she's just out going to take revenge on him. Or it's possible, it's possible that she was just feeling rather neglected. Um, you know, I was listening to David Jeremiah talk about a friend who actually committed adultery. And he went through this experience talking about with this guy. And, and for the guy, he said, It it really wasn't physical. It wasn't the physical aspect so much. It was the emotional. There was some lady, 
And she just at work and she would just notice what he did and she would just comment like, boy, you did a great job here. And she was just kind of so for him. And she made this emotional connection. And there's just something about in a guy that desires feminine adoration. And he said, it wasn't that she was even better looking my wife or anything like that. It's that she was meeting an emotional need in my life. And he's one thing led to another. And he had total disaster. We're not exactly sure what the factors were. By the way, if you are married, there are physical and emotional needs that you are to meet in your spouse. This is never an excuse for adultery, but who knows what was going on here for the life of Mrs. Potiphar. Somewhere along the line, though, that she thought this was a good idea. And so she just makes this command, lie with me, come to bed with me. But notice verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Now, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her, or be with her. She presents this in terms of, of power rather than love. It's a command rather than seduction. And he may just consider like, why not? Why not? I mean, think of it. He lives in a culture where immorality was prevalent. His brothers were no paragons of virtue, right? Do you remember last week? Hard to forget, right? Judah? He's a young man. It's very likely that Potiphar's wife was probably very beautiful because Potiphar, as a guy who was in an elite position in the Egyptian empire, would have had his pick over many women. But he resists. In fact, it is a remarkable resistance because, I mean, think of it. Think of this temptation that he's facing. It came out of nowhere. He wasn't expecting it. It was a surprise temptation. Things were going great. All of a sudden, Mrs. Potiphar takes a real interest in him. And then it was an ongoing. This isn't a one-time thing. Did you see that? Verse 10, she spoke day after day. She keeps coming after him, flirting with him, trying with gestures, looks, anything, words, to convince him to commit immorality with her. And, And really, it was a covert thing. Who would have ever known? She's not going to tell anybody, right? And he wouldn't. Now, let me just tell you something about our character. The test of a person's character is what he or she would do if they knew they would not get caught. What this is, is a paramount test of his character. And there's some lessons that we can learn about how to overcome temptation. Because this was obviously a very significant one. The first one is... You want to develop a deep awareness of God's continual presence. Do you remember how it's been highlighted? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He had a deep understanding and reliance on the presence of God. Remember this. He is with you wherever you are. At school, at home, in your dorm room, on your business trip, in your hotel room, here in church, on your ride home. In your house, in your office, by your computer, the Lord, he's always with you. 
you know, and our dependence on God is, is going to give us discernment and dealing with people. And he sees this There's like, no way, I'm not going to have this. You know, he has he has such a great joy in knowing God. He's not going to succumb to this temptation and the pleasures of sin. And I'll tell you this, that if you have a healthy fear of God, it will keep you from the harmful effects of sin. Let me give you a great proverb, Proverb 14, verse 27. It says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. When you have a high, holy reverence for God, it is a fountain of life. God is good. Life is great because you are living in relationship and reverence with God. But he also says, but this what this does, it will keep you and allow you to avoid the snares of death because they're all around. Well, Joseph has a very high view of God. He has a deep awareness of God's presence. And he also has this. You want to have convictions before the crisis. He had a developed set of convictions of what he would and would not do. Now, let me tell you, encountering temptation is not a sin. Okay? Temptations are going to come across our path. You can't really stop that billboard or you see this or something like that. But let me tell you this. Engaging in them is a sin. Encountering them is not a sin, but engaging them is And she has these incessant efforts. She is always going after him. And by the way, let me remind you that he doesn't have a lot of scripture. He doesn't have the book that we call the Bible of God's full of divine revelation of everything we need. You remember the law about not committing adultery and not coveting your neighbor's wife? That's written about 400 years into the future. He does have this. He has the presence of God that is keeping him from falling in to this sin. He knows that it is wrong and that it is not right. He had drawn the lines of where he would and he would not go long before the crisis hit. A conviction is not something you hold. It is something that holds you. And don't think that you're going to develop your convictions in the heat of the moment. You're not. You have to have them figured out before the moment arises. You know, you might want to write this out, what your convictions are, especially in this area of morality, sexual morality. Uh, if you're younger, probably it'd be a real good idea to talk with your parents about what those are and for parents to engage your kids about where those lines are. And you want to make sure that maybe you want to write them out, but make sure that they're written in your heart because you will be tested well for joseph he had his convictions before the crisis let me tell you something else you need to know that love involves loyalty you see he realized that if he actually would do this his trust and the loyalty that that he had with potiphar would all be broken and there was obviously a sense that he loved the man even though he was owned by him And you realize that love involves loyalty. That's actually true with our relationship with God. If you love him, there's going to be times where that loyalty is going to be tested. Who are you going to serve? God or Baal? God are the things of this world. God are your lust. Love involves loyalty with God, with people, in your marriage. He seemed to understand that. He understood this principle. To do evil to another person is sinning against God. We think it's, well, it's just a horizontal issue. Uh Uh-uh. You hurt. You do evil against someone else. It is a sin issue against God. 
and he is going to, there's going to be a payment that's going to need to be made. It's an offense to his morality. Morality isn't determined by social culture. Morality is divine. It is given by God. He is the one who has established it. And you violate his understanding and his decree of what is right and what is wrong and what is holy. And justice must be met and a payment will need to take place. Well, you see, for Joseph, he actually understood that. He knew that love involved loyalty. Let me give you something else here. Do not become callous to sin. You know what a callus is? I've got them on my hands. You might have some on your feet. Please don't show me. But you've got calluses, you know. And what happens is it's from abrasion, right? You keep going back and forth. And all of a sudden, whether it's using tools or running around barefoot or whatever, those abrasions develop in callus. Those calluses become very insensitive. You can stick a pin into these calluses and you wouldn't feel it. Because what's happened, it's, it's all kind of worn, it's become really thick, it's like dead, I don't even fully understand it. But that's what happens when you continually expose yourself to sin. We're living in a culture, especially here in the States, where you're just everywhere you turn, there is wickedness on display. And oftentimes it's presented under the guise of, this is entertainment. It, our TV programs... The stuff that is out there a couple generations ago would have been shocking. The movies, now we call it PG-13. You might want to have your parents with you when you see this. Friends, what happens if you continually expose yourself, whether it be on the Internet, on your little TV shows, the movies, what is happening is you create a desensitizing effect on your heart and your mind and your life, and you pretty soon, you're not exactly sure what's wrong or right anymore. Because your heart has become calloused over. Well, obviously, Joseph was going to be really careful. And he was very careful. There's just another point I want to point out. Because he was concerned with God's glory. And therefore, he was careful to avoid sin. You see, do you see what he said here? When he responds to her, he says, how could I do this great evil? Verse 9, and sin against God. He is very concerned that God is glorified and looks great in his life because, frankly, he is the missionary to Egypt. There is one believer in the entire empire. He's it. And he's very concerned with God's glory. And furthermore, you remember in verse three where, you know, Potiphar got this all figured out. It's about the Lord. God makes this man great. Obviously, there was conversations that took place. Do you know what that would have done to his testimony? about I serve the one true living God, that would have been totally flushed. It would have been over. No more conversations. Game over. Because obviously it wasn't real. Joseph had a real understanding of that. And let me just tell you one other thing. You want to be smart enough to stay away from the source. That is smart by staying away from temptations. Now, she's brash. Okay, she's going after him. I mean, I would imagine she pulled everything that she could to try to get his attention, to get him to succumb into buying into a sexual relationship with her. But it's more than physical. There's something in verse 10 at the end of it I want you to see. He did not listen to her. She's coming after day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her. But look at what else it says. Or be with her. When she discovered that the raw sexual, sensual level wasn't working, she seemed to want to trap him on a social level. And so it seemed to be about where he wouldn't even be with her. She's like, you know, hey, listen, I am really lonely. 
I just want your companionship. You're such a good guy. You're a great conversationalist. I just want to be with you to talk with you. I just want your companionship. I, let's just have lunch. For Joseph, he recognized what he was facing. He said no. Staying away from temptation helps us to steer clear from sin. If it is a problem for you, if that place, that site, whatever, that computer, stay away from it. Draw some hard lines in the sand. And for him, he wouldn't even be with her. Romans thirteen fourteen says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. For him, he understands I'm not even going to be around you. Um, if you were uh, facing a situation, maybe it's at work, maybe it's some place that you go or you frequent, and you're facing a real temptation, if you can't change your approach to this, I want to strongly encourage you, as your friend and as your pastor, leave. Go get another job. Go find someplace else to work out. Go someplace else because it is not worth the devastation it will cause you and your family or your future spouse to go and bring that kind of wreckage, not only in your life, but in the lives of all the people around you, including your folks, your parents, friends. It's all it's more than about you. It's about a lot of folks. And it's certainly about God. You know, this is kind of how it works. I was reading about a guy named Craig Larson. He went to a party in Chicago and uh there in September, they had all the windows open. Now, we wouldn't do this in Texas because we'd be dying at the 100 degree heat. But they had all the windows open and and a bee flew in through one of the windows. You know, it's like, hey, I'm here for the party. And so the bee is buzzing around. He's apparently buzzing by Craig. He's shooting off. The bee finds the food, right? He's right there. there. Well, uh, one of his colleagues, this lady, she picks up this bottle of uh, that sparkling grape juice. It was an empty one. And she takes that bottle and she goes right over there by that bee. And he's kind of thinking, well, that's dumb because, you know, that bee functions like a butterfly. It's just a butterfly away, you know, like a butterfly. A butterfly is a butterfly for about a month, okay? And so a butterfly would be like, I don't want anybody to rest with you. That's why they're always flying away from you. They're only alive for about a month. They're going to stay away from things like a bottle coming to them. So he's thinking, that's not going to work. The, the bee there, the bee's going to go someplace else. But no, that bee just like immediately, like it had done a hundred times maybe before, it just, it goes right into the bottle. Right in there, she takes that empty bottle, puts the little cap on it, and she tosses it, and it's gone. Now, what's going on here? Was did this this lady? Did she just have a great compassion for the bee and wanted the bee to have a good time, just like everybody else? I mean, after all, you, I like the sparkling grape juice. I'm sure the bee would as well. Look, there's some on the bottom here. Here, here, help you. I'm, I'm trying to help you. No, she doesn't like the bee. Not at all. It, for her, it's all about capture and control. And that bee dies in that empty bottle. Satan functions very much on the exact same principle. It's all about capture and control. Satan incites us to indulge the pleasures of the world in a manner that oversteps God's commands. And so he puts these solicitations, these temptations out there. Come on, come on, try this. Because he knows that like a bee going into that bottle, once he's got you, he's got you and he traps you. And he's meant to bring devastation to your life. That's how temptation works, especially in this area of sexual immorality and sexual temptation. 
you know, when it comes to these matters of temptation, it's better to be a butterfly and fly away than a bee. Well, one day, verse 11, now it happened that one day he went into the house to do his work. He's just doing his job, right? And none of the men of the household were there inside. And verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So here we have a situation where she just just she actually takes matters literally in her own hands. She grabs a hold of his garment, his coat. He sees what's going on. She makes her command. He just pulls away. Let me tell you, friends, it is better to flee than to fall. Joseph lost his coat. You know what he kept, though? His character. There's, there's not a lot of things that we're supposed to run from as believers in God. But one thing we're to run from is temptation. Remember in 2 Timothy 2.22? Now flee, flee. That word means run, run away. Flee youthful lusts and do what? And pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Run away, flee from it. When, when you face temptation and you feel the adrenaline, the surge, the emotions kind of flow, do this. Try a 10 second prayer. There is great power in a 10 second prayer. Just say, God, how do you want me to respond to this? He will show you the way of escape. People that buy into temptation, whether it's pornography or immorality or stealing or lying or whatever. Do you know what? They have not consulted God because God always. That's his promise. First Corinthians 10 verse 13. I'll give you the way of escape. I'll show you. He doesn't even need 10 seconds. He knew that retreat was far better than defeat. He runs away. She's in a panic. She thought she literally had caught him and had him. Well, now she sees, verse 13, that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside. She's pretty clever, pretty quick. Watch this. She sees the situation. She's got the coat. So she turns it on. Verse 14. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. And, and when I when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and and went outside. So you see what she does. She sees he's got the garment. She concocts a story. In fact, she's already twisting it. She obviously has some resentment toward her husband because she, he says he has brought in this Hebrew. That is a pejorative. It's a slam. OK, and. She starts making all these lies up. She's got this coat, and so she makes it look like Joseph came in and attacked her. Well, that's her big plan. And she's trying to get these other slaves to buy in and to have sympathy. Look, this, this Hebrew, the foreigner, he came in, and he's trying to make sport of me. Look what's happened. I've got his coat. It's like he had disrobed himself or something. He's just going to attack this woman. Well, that's her story, and she's trying to get everybody to believe it, and that's usually how it works when people are lying. You want to get as much buy-in as possible. So she's trying to get all this buy-in. She's rehearsing this story. She's telling it. She's making it look good. And there's something that you need to see in verse 16. So she left his garment beside her until her master came home. She not only wants him to hear about it, Potiphar, she wants him to visualize it. So... This is, this is really bad acting, but she's like lays there and she has the coat there. And she's going to lay there like, why is he coming home? Do, 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 do. You know, and, you know, and finally, because finally Potiphar makes his, his entrance. Verse 17. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave. 
slam. Whom you brought to us. This is all your fault. He came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. I'm sure Potiphar knew his wife pretty well. This guy obviously was pretty intelligent. You don't, you don't hold high positions in an empire without having your wits about you. You know, I'm sure he could see right through this. She's laying there. Here's the garment. He's like, what? But he's got to do something, doesn't he? She's saying, Joseph attacked her. Verse 19. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me. See, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. Now, initially you might think that his anger burned toward Joseph. And that is possible. But I think it's much more likely that his anger burned toward his wife. Because he knew the character of Joseph. He trusted him implicitly with everything. He could see this little acting, bad acting as it was, this story of concoction. Potiphar is likely very angry with his wife, and yet he is going to have to do something. And so verse 20, so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. This is very interesting because, first of all, jails were actually not very common. The idea of imprisoning someone for lengthy periods of time, that was not something that was practiced, especially in the Egyptian empire, but for many empires. That's, that's rather a novel idea. We're just going to keep someone in jail and keep them alive for 30, 40, 50 years. A serious charge, like a slave trying to rape the, this guy's wife. You know how they dealt with those issues? You're dead. You commit adultery. Even in the, in the Mosaic Law, you commit adultery, you're dead. You just... It's over, just like that. That's exactly what would have happened in the Egyptian Empire. You commit adultery, you're dead. And Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard, lead guy in the empire, no problem. Kill him right there on the spot. Just have one of your servants to say, kill him. There's something more going on. He sees, I think, right through this. That's why he actually puts him into prison. Probably another area that he oversaw he becomes one of the king's prisoners, and that's where Joseph is confined in jail. But I want you to see something in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Do you see that? The Lord was with him. And there's this great Hebrew word, hased. It means God's loyal love. It's he, that the Lord, Yahweh, extended kindness, grace, loyal love, to Joseph while he was in jail and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And look what happens. The chief jailer, verse 22, committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. And this is the great message that we're supposed to pick up from this chapter. And that's this. That the Lord was with Joseph in times of prosperity and in times of adversity. This is the nature of God. 
This is how you and I can go through trials and difficulties and face temptation because the Lord is with us. The kindness of God is not thwarted by the wickedness of man. Hardships do not separate us from the presence of God. And you need to know something else. Right behavior is not always immediately rewarded. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up. They think, I did what's right. I responded correctly here. I want my immediate reward. Let me give you one big lesson from the Old Testament. God is not in a hurry. Okay? He's not. This is all part of his plan. Joseph still has some lessons that he needs to learn. And so this theme of God's presence, it, it is woven throughout his history with his people. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. In the situation with Isaac, God appears to Isaac and he says, do not fear. I am with you. With Jacob, God appears to him in a dream. He says, behold, I am with you. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. When Jacob comes back into the land, he, God makes this statement. God speaks to him and says, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. And I will be with you. And with Joseph, God is with him. Whether he's prosperous and the head guy or he's locked in some jail, the Lord is with him. And friends, the difference is his presence. And because the difference is God's presence, God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know how his name is Emmanuel? Does anybody know what that means? God with us. God knows so much that we are in such need of his presence and that life is truly meant when we are dependent and reliant upon his presence, that God has given us Christ, that when we trust him, we experience not only his forgiveness for all of our sins, but his presence in our life. And his presence makes all the difference, gives us strength and it gives us a deep seated sense of peace and well-being and wisdom and courage and insight gives us confidence, faith, joy. All of this comes from his presence. And there's something I think we need to say here. Every single person in this room, including me, we have all failed at different temptations and actually bought into it. True? There's only one perfect person here today that has never sinned. And that is Jesus Christ. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. And not only does he do that, but he actually, all his righteousness, his perfect life, that actually is transferred in our account. And when you turn from your sin and your self-centeredness and trust Christ, you enter into a relationship with Emmanuel, God with us, and his presence is now secured in your life. In fact, he gives us his Holy Spirit and he invests it in the life of everyone who truly believes in Christ. And the difference in our life is his presence. How can you go through temptation, difficulty, challenge, hardship? Friends, the only way and the best way is to have reliance on his presence for the difference is his presence. So this week, as we go through our week, let's have a week that's different than any other. Let us be like Joseph, very conscious, always talking to God, very much relying upon him who is our life. And let us not let us find this. That the difference is his presence. Let's pray.